We're reading from Philippians chapter 1, 1 to 11. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I will always pray with joy because of your partnership. Oh, sorry. Ugh. Being confident of this, day until now, ugh, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on, on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whenever I am in the chains of defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that all your love may abound more and more in knowledge and knowledge and depth of insight so that you you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of high righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, today as Michael saying we're beginning a new series on Philippians it's a it's a fabulous letter of Paul and um uh, the church of Philippi was one that was um, that filled the Apostle Paul with great joy. When people actually read Philippians, they often call it the Epistle of Joy um, as he reads it. And they were one of his great supporters in his ministry as he uh, went around preaching the gospel through thick and thin, good times and bad, um, with his ministry. So today we just want to look at these first 11 verses um, that were read out for us as sort of an introduction outline, fairly complete outline is in your um, booklet so you might like to grab hold of one if you haven't got one there and keep your Bible open at uh, Philippians chapter 1. In the outline I've simply called this um, opening section Introductory Matters because I couldn't think of a more creative title to sort of um, call it to grab your attention. Um, But as with the other letters of Paul what we find is many of the prominent sort of matters that he's going to talk about um, are sort of flagged in these opening remarks and he will fill out uh, certain things along the way. These first 11 verses consist of three fairly obvious sections, I think, probably according to the headings uh, in your Bible. The first is just the first two verses have an opening greeting. Then that's followed by a prayer of thanksgiving for the church in verses 3 to 8 and then a petitionary prayer, that is a prayer where Paul asks for something for them in verses 9 and 11. So let's begin then just with the greetings from Paul and Timothy in 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Timothy is included, you might um, be surprised by this, but Timothy is included uh, with Paul as co-author in six of his letters. That's quite common in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Corinthians, in Colossians, in Philemon and here in Philippians. Now of course in one sense this may reflect the close relationship Paul had with Timothy. Elsewhere he calls him his son in the faith. But it may also mean that um, Timothy acted as a sort of secretary for Paul. Um, in writing these letters because we know from other information in his letters that this was Paul's practice often, that he didn't actually necessarily write 
the letters, but he might dictate them and have a, a secretary write them um, as well. And so Timothy might be in here as a co-author um, as a result of that. But when you read Philippians, it will become quick. It will become clear very quickly that this is a written. This is a letter written very much from Paul's personal perspective and not the two of them together. This really is a letter from Paul himself um, rather than a letter in terms of its content from both he and Timothy. And in fact, he talks about Timothy in chapter 2. The really interesting thing, however, in the greeting is the way the church is addressed. So notice it says specifically, to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Now this specific reference to overseers and deacons occurs nowhere else in Paul. In fact, Paul (coughs) only really mentions these two sort of leadership functions in the pastoral letters that are written to Timothy and Titus themselves and not in the opening on the way through as he talks about what uh, qualifications for these two jobs ought to be. So it's really unusual that Paul should mention here, the overseers and the deacons. Why does he do that? Well, the clue, I think, may be in the language. Notice that um, <coughs> the NIV has together with the overseers and the deacons, and I've put in the outline, including. And we will see as we go through Philippians that um, there was a bit of a problem developing with some sort of division in the church. There was a couple of people particularly who were seen to be a bit at each other's throats. Um, and that was sort of uh, beginning to infest a bit. And uh, I think that uh, what we see in chapter 2, we'll see that there's a a strong, if you like, call for humble unity modelled after Jesus' incarnation in coming from heaven to earth. Paul then, right at the beginning here, may be subtly stating that leaders, even though they might have a special role in the church, really only have the same status as all of God's people. The leaders are here reminded that they are, as one writer puts it, those who are content to stand among the saints as those who serve. And I think that's the same, that's true here, of the uh, leadership at Grove. Leadership um, is not about status at all. It's about service. Mike, Amanda, Jack, members of the leadership team, community group leaders, etc., are not over you as if they are in some sense superior or more, more worthy, but simply members of God's church like you, members of God's holy people here at Grove, who have been given a special role in leadership. It's a special role in which to serve. And I'm sure that, that is the way that all the leaders here at Grove actually see themselves. Well, just before we get to the greeting itself, just a couple of points to fill out um, the setting. The Philippian church was a church founded by Paul. So this is one that, that, that he that came about as a result of his apostolic ministry. And that wasn't true of all the churches he wrote to. The prime example in this, for instance, is Paul's great letter to Romans, where he wrote to churches and people he had never Uh, been to or seen before. You can read about uh, the beginnings of this church in Acts 16. And I've got a map here, which is going to come up, isn't it, Daniel? Yeah. 
uh, just to show you uh, that journey. So here is, here I hope, uh, working last night. Oh, I'll have to, uh, why isn't that working? Well, anyway, you can see. Well, here in Jerusalem um, is where he starts and goes up through what is now modern Turkey, what then was Galatia and Asia. And if you read Acts 16, you'll see he gets to Troas. You see Troas up there at the top of Asia. And uh, we don't know what was Paul was going to do, but we think he was going to double back. And then he has a dream and uh, a vision in the night. And God's, and here's a call to come over to Macedonia. And this is the way Paul actually ends up doing all these other letters that we know about, Thessalonians, etc., Corinth and that sort of thing. So he, he hops over from Troas, presumably by boat, um, to uh, Neapolis and then to Philippi. And that's how he gets there. The call of God takes him uh, to Philippi. And from there, he then goes on down through Greece um, to Thessalonica and to Corinth and then to Ephesus and back home. So that's just to show you how uh, Philippians came about. You can toss that off now. Um, <clears throat> here. And that was specifically as God led him, not because he'd mapped it out to a certain extent, but that uh, really focal moment of Paul's vision where he's called to go to Macedonia. Now, however, many years later, after writing, after founding that church, Paul was in prison. He's writing from prison to a church under persecution. He refers to his imprisonment a number of times in chapter 1. You might notice uh, we've seen it in, in verse 7 in the, what was read where he says, whether I am in chains, his common way of talking about it, or defending confirming the gospel. If you were to go down to verse 14, he says, and because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters that are. And then again in verse 17, he says, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in uh, chains. Now this probably refers to Paul's um, Roman imprisonment, which you can find referred to in Acts 28, where he was under house arrest and from which he was later released. And it's a sort of a an unusual imprisonment, a house arrest, because he seems to have had a fair bit of freedom um, in this arrest. Freedom to actually receive and send people. So we'll see in this letter how Timothy and Epaphroditus have been with him and he's sending Epaphroditus back. And uh, so he can communicate with his fellow workers and uh, have people send things to him and he can send people back. That the church was actually undergoing persecution for the sake of the gospel is indicated at the end of chapter 1. In verses 29 and 30, Paul says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. So to this suffering church, who was suffering for their faith, in Christ as Paul was. Paul greets them with what became to be his standard and specifically Christian greeting. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, although the NIV groups grace and peace to you, the text literally says grace to you and peace. And uh, other translations like the ESV, for instance, translate it like that. And I think the two should be separated. The former, grace, probably referring to what God has given his people in Christ and the latter being the result. Peace with God, for instance, peace has come about with God and peace within the believing community. Gordon Fee, one of the commentators on Philippians, puts it well when he states, the sum total of God's activity towards his human creatures is found in the word grace. God has given himself to his people bountifully and mercifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved, nothing can be achieved. The sum total of those benefits as they are experienced by the recipients of God, of God's grace is peace. God's eschatological shalom, both now and to come. It's true that in one sense, friends, our whole Christian experience is locked up in these two words. Grace and peace. Grace is what we've received. Peace is its result. Well, from this opening greeting, Paul now moves on to what we describe, what might be described as a prayer report. Um, firstly, in terms of thanksgiving, uh, for the church, and then in terms uh, of uh, petition. With Paul's common practice to do this with all these letters, and only one doesn't do it, and that's Galatians, and there's a sort of special reason uh, for that. So from verses 3 to 8, we see Paul's thanksgiving for the church. In verse 3 we read, I thank God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So it was Paul's common practice when he prayed to the churches to begin with thanksgiving. And it's something he will recommend in this letter in chapter 4, that we should always pray with thanksgiving later on. And most of the time this thanksgiving relates to something specific about the church, um, about either his relationship to the church or some aspect of their growth in their Christian living. So here, Paul says he always prays with joy when he prays for them because of their partnership, or I've got in brackets, fellowship there, in the gospel. Because the word partnership here is literally fellowship. But most translations go with partnership because it is a particular sort of fellowship that Paul is referring to. It has a very practical edge to it. It involved, Paul says later in chapter 4, a giving and a receiving of people, of money and a prayer which had begun since he founded the church from the very beginning uh, that he founded the church to even that very day when he was writing far away from them, imprisonment in Rome. And hence that's why most versions you'll see will translate it as a partnership because it's really a partnership in gospel work. And the language, I think, is very instructive. I think there's a great tendency sometimes in the church to separate, if you like, the person who speaks or the frontline person out there as uh, someone doing the ministry. We tend to separate that from the support that uh, surrounds them. So our link missionaries, the Rose, you know, are in ministry in Namibia and we're providing support. 
Um, or you've got local gospel work is seen primarily to belonging to, you know, the pastors, the evangelists, those who preach or speak. But, you know, Paul will have none of that at all. None of that at all. He does not separate the speaking and the proclaiming from the support that allows it to happen. As far as he's concerned, it's all gospel work. It's all gospel partnership. And that is the way we ought to see it and get involved. You know, we've got the Ambassador Soccer Camp coming up the next couple of weeks over the school holidays. Along with a good time playing soccer, gospel will be shared. It might only be one person or a few formally sharing the gospel, but everyone involved at the camp, praying, giving financially to support it, or doing whatever jobs need to be done, are involved in a partnership in the gospel. That is the way Paul would see it. Friends, I think that's one very important reason why we exist as a church, why God has brought us together, to partner with one another and with others and with other organisations, Christian organisations, in seeing the gospel of Jesus shared here and overseas with the whole world. It might be that the gifts God has given you are to be the teacher or the proclaimer or maybe the promoter, the giver, the Skyper, as I call them these days. You know, somebody who can use Skype to communicate, Skyper. The letter writer, the regular prayer. What will be your part in this great work of gospel partnership? Where will you seek to be involved? Now remember, Paul is currently in prison. The Philippians are suffering under persecution. Uh, Partnership in the gospel is important, but it's not easy. Yet Paul is full of joy. Why? Well, there are a couple of reasons, but one that I think he notes here is because he knows that such work does not depend on him. In fact, it cannot depend on him or the Philippians. Paul rejoices because he was assured, he says in verse 6, and confident that God will complete the work begun. So he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And here's one of the great statements of Christian assurance in all of Paul's letters. In the end, gospel work is God's work. And Christian faith is begun through the activity of God's spirit in us. We can be assured that God will complete the work, just as we heard in the children's talk there. You'll keep on doing and doing and doing and completing the work until Jesus returns. So there's no need for us to fear that someone might come and overpower someone or something and take us away from Christ because the God who began a good work in us can be relied on to bring it to completion. This includes not only our salvation in Christ, it also includes our activity in gospel work. We work, we proclaim, we give, we pray because God is at work. It would be a pointless exercise otherwise. If God wasn't at work, it would be pointless doing all those things. It is because God is at work that we proclaim, we give, 
we pray, um, to promote gospel work. Paul knew the Philippians' partnership in the gospel was the testimony to God's work in their lives. And so he expressed great joy and thanks to God over them. Now, in one way, he goes on to defend this sense um, of joy he has and affection he has for them in verses 7 to 8. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul's feelings, if you like, for the Philippians represent an affection born out of a shared grace and passion. Humans know all about shared passion, don't we? Except it's rather disappointing today. If you get my drift. I think that is what uh, Paul means when he says the Philippians share God's grace with me. Notice those words. He might be referring to God's grace of salvation, but I think in this context it's far more likely that he is referring to God's grace given to him to see the gospel work expand. That's why he says you share God's grace with me. In other words, the Philippians share his passion for defending and confirming the gospel. Paul's encouraged by the fact that whether in chains or proclaiming the gospel in some other way, they share this grace with him. The Philippians were on the same wavelength. They shared the same perspective, the same passion to see the gospel furthered in people's lives. He was encouraged and joyful. It was right for him to feel this affection for them as a result. He held them in his heart and he longed for them with the affection of Christ. I was thinking about this and thought, now how do you foster that sort of culture in a church? How do we foster that sort of culture of sharing a passion to see um, the gospel go? Well, friends, in some ways I think uh, we can do this uh, by telling each other stories. Sharing stories with each other of God's work in our lives and throughout the world, and particularly cross-generational. It's one of the great things, I think, about us here, that we have a cross-generational togetherness. I can testify that one of the greatest encouragements to older Christians, for instance, um, is to hear from the younger generation how the gospel's broken into their lives and how God is using them and working through them with their own enthusiasm, often a lot more than us older people can bring, Um, to the gospel of Jesus, bring the gospel of Jesus to others. And older believers, um, I think, can encourage the younger by sharing how God has been faithful through the ages, time after time, decade after decade. You see, because it confirms to the younger generation, I think, that the gospel is not just a fad. Because we have so many fads, don't we, in our world that come and go. But the gospel is real and true 
and something you can invest your life in. Talk to each other, tell each other stories. Foster, foster that uh, passion to see the gospel uh, go out throughout our world. Paul had a close relationship with the Philippian church because it was born out of a shared perspective, a shared passion, a shared partnership for the furtherance of the gospel. He he thanks God for the Philippian church and he thanks for uh, that church provide a challenge to us to develop this same sort of perspective, to see the gospel furthered and a commitment to partner together, to see that end under God's hand continue to grow amongst us. Now, such thanksgiving then leads him to prayer for the church and a petition in verses uh, 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may, may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now Paul packs, as he often does, a lot in a short space of time there. But his basic prayer is clear in verse 9. He wants their love to abound more and more. This is typical Paul. He often prays that the churches may grow in love. Why wouldn't he? After all, it was the Lord Jesus himself who said the greatest two commandments were to love God and to love our neighbour. The language already implies that the Philippians demonstrated love, but Paul is never content for you to sit where you are. He's never content for you to just stay where you are. And so he says he wants their love to grow and abound more and more. But what is truly interesting about Paul's prayer here are the words that follow. Paul prays that their love may abound in knowledge and depth of insight. You see, true love, as you would agree, in the end, is other person-centred. It's modelled by the love of Christ and looks to what is best for someone else, what's in their best interests. But to do that in a broken world where humanity has rejected God and the knowledge of his ways have been corrupted, love needs something to guide it. It doesn't just know what to do automatically. It needs to be regulated, or as I've put in the outline, informed by knowledge and depth of insight. You see, if we're truly to love people, we need knowledge applied to everyday life with insight and wisdom. And that knowledge can come only from the word of God and the needed insight from the leading of God's Holy Spirit. If we're not students of the word, friends, we cannot know what is best and we cannot love truly. Everyone knows, I think, when you think about it, that it's possible to have the best of intentions without knowing what's truly best. And hence sometimes even to hurt people by what you say even when your intentions might have been good. So let me illustrate for a moment um, 
this sort of point from what is the controversial debate about same-sex marriage. I don't know whether anybody saw the news this week um, that one of Tony Abbott's daughters, Frances, uh, disagreed with him about the postal survey and would vote yes. And lest someone misunderstand me here, this is not a statement about how you should vote uh, at all. Not interested in that, at least for this point, but simply to underline a false notion about love, which I think is so common in our society. In the interview, Frances repeated a common mantra when she stated, you can't help who you love. How many times I've heard that before. But you see, this statement's not a statement about love at all. It's really just a statement about attraction. It may be that you can't help whom you're attracted to, but that doesn't tell you at all what to do with such attraction. Only God's word can tell you that. Just as few people, I think, would agree that uh, some attraction to another woman by a married man, some discovery of that, would not be a justification automatically to get a divorce. So attraction to the person of the same sex is not a reason to marry or have a sexual relationship that overturns God's design for human sexuality. You see, love seeks to do the best for others. And it needs knowledge and insight to guide it, to know what is the best for others. Paul says the goal of this love then is that we may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. These two words um, denote, if you like, moral purity and character, both in motive and action. Paul's ultimate concern then uh, for a prayer is for a prayer that the Philippians may abound more and more in their love, that they may be fully changed and made to be like Christ when he returns. The following phrase confirms that. He says in a parallel phrase, filled with the fruit of righteousness. You see, love is the handmaiden of righteousness. They go together. What is truly righteous can only be known and given by God himself. In one sense, this takes us back to verse 6 and Paul's confidence that God will complete the work. For who could possibly meet such a demand to love? Who could possibly be adequate to become pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness? Certainly not you, certainly not me. It is only God who who can complete such a task. And it's interesting that Paul closes this opening section by repeating that truth in another way. He says, For such love that leads to the fruit of righteousness in our lives comes only through Jesus Christ to God's glory. The last words in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus told a a parable about the kingdom of God. It was uh, one of many parables he told about the kingdom of God. And he said the kingdom of God was like a growing seed. (coughs) Jesus describes the activity of a gardener who scatters seed around and, um, and it grows in ways he does not understand. 
he sleeps or he gets up, uh, whatever he does, it still grows and then by, me- by means he doesn't know and uh, at harvest time he can then uh, reap the wards. Now there is a sense in which this is what's being said here. As one writer states, when the plant is full grown the gardener has to confess ignorance on how the growth has taken place. His careful tending is not insignificant nor is it optional for the intended plant will die. It's something other than man makes it grow. It is the same with the fruits of righteousness. Our obedience, our discipline and hard graft are not insignificant, insignificant or optional. On the contrary, they are the God-intended context of growth. But something else energises the growth till the fruit is ready for harvest. All is done through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. A father is ceaselessly at work for the glory of the son and the son is ceaselessly at work for the glory of the father. Well, let me conclude. From these opening words of Paul to the Philippians, the challenge before us today, I think, as a church is to be the sort of church that Paul gave thanks for and prayed for. Terms of thanks, one with the furtherance of the gospel at our heart, partnering together with each other and with others to see the gospel of Jesus spoken to all people, whether it be locally here or elsewhere in our country or overseas. And also to be a church, whether as individuals or as a community who live uh, according to what he prayed for with a love that grows more and more to do what is best for others because it is informed by the word of God and applied with insight in daily life through God's spirit. Were it not for the power of God, this task would be onerous, depressing and fruitless. For we are often neglectful frequently failing and ever inadequate. But we work because God is at work through his Son, empowering us by the Spirit for his ultimate glory and our ultimate transformation at the day of Christ. So let's pray, shall we, that God might do this work in us as only he can. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, um, for your grace. We thank you for your grace that has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, which has brought us to know you, to be forgiven, and to be employed in your service the result of which we have peace with you and peace with one another. We do ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, to be a church uh, with your priorities and the gospel of Christ at our centre. 
We pray that you would help us to always, as we meet and think about what we're doing, as we think about our Vision Sunday coming up, that we would be a church that is fixed on a partnership in the gospel, uh, to see uh, the good news of the gospel uh, work in the lives of people everywhere and especially here at Grove in our local area. And we pray, Lord, that that proclamation of the gospel, that partnership might be backed up by lives, individual and as a group, that people see that are lives of love, that seek to do the best for others. Um, So that that proclamation might be seen to be credible um, in the way you have changed us. We do know that the task is beyond us. And so we thank you that you are the one who really accomplishes this. And we ask for the power of your spirit at work in our lives to indeed do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.